0: This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, November 20th, 2016 at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at RestorationRoadChurch.com. Amen, awesome. Well, we're in Genesis 31, so if you'd open your Bibles, we're gonna be going through, I typically read the, the big chunk of the text on the front end, but this time we're gonna go through it kinda piece by piece and finish up Genesis 31. Um, If you don't know, my name is Sam, and I have the privilege of of preaching a lot here, and we're going to be finishing up 31, and then we'll go to 32 next week, and 33, and we'll keep going, and we'll be done at some point. I'm not sure, but I'm going to read the first couple verses of Genesis 31 to give you uh, a little bit of context, and yes, I don't typically sound like this. I'm not trying to impress you and be like Batman. I am just... Six, so deal with it, Uh, show me some grace and if I end up hacking up a lung in the middle of the sermon, that's of God. Verse one says this, now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's and from what was our father's he has gained all his wealth and Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. And then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. This is the first part of God's word. We've been going through the life of this guy named Jacob. In the Old Testament, you hear this phrase that's repeated, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. The story of God plays itself out in the family of God, which ultimately results in the Savior of God named Jesus. And it comes through this line, this Jewish line that ultimately is God's people so the story of Jacob prior to Genesis 31 20 years ago from the point that we're beginning today God had promised Jacob that he would bring him home again home is what we would call Canaan or the land of Israel the promised land so he left that land as he was fleeing his brother who was angry for robbing him of all kinds of things Uh, And he was also on a mission to look for a bride. And so as he's about to leave, God says, I'll bring you back someday. He didn't tell them when exactly or how exactly this would happen, which honestly is something he probably wouldn't have been real excited about had he told him. And the interesting thing is we're always, maybe you're not, but I know that I have the tempt- temptation sometimes. to I wish the Lord would tell me how it's going to work itself out. I know what he has said. I know what he's revealed. If you just tell me, I'm not sure we'd actually be okay with that. If Jacob had been told, like, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be abused and, and totally, like, um, cheated, and you're going to have to work seven years for one girl you don't even love and another for the one you love and all these things, How would Jacob have received that? Like, that sounds awesome, God. Thanks a lot. So God, I think by grace, doesn't reveal what's going to happen exactly. He does reveal his will, but he often keeps his ways and his means and his methods a secret. For Jacob, as I said, it was 14 years of faithful service under a very self-serving and unfaithful idolatrous uncle named Laban. And after those 14 years, I believe we read last week that he had been told, look, it's, it's coming time to go home in a dream. And so he goes to his uncle and says, you know what, I'm ready to go home. And Laban asks him to stay. And he makes him an offer he can't refuse in many ways, saying, name your price if you'll continue to work for me. I know I haven't paid you really anything for the last 14 years except my two daughters, and I know now you have 11 boys and one daughter and a big family to take care of and no money to your name. Name my price, name your price, and I will pay you. And so he, after a brief negotiation that's kind of weird, and you can read about it in 30, chapter 30, he stays for another six years. And by God's grace, despite the cruelty of Laban and the the unfairness with which he is treated and paid, Jacob prospers greatly during these years, so much so that as we read the beginning of 31, no one likes him anymore. Laban doesn't favor anymore. Laban's workers and servants are not excited that it looks like Jacob has robbed Laban of everything and gotten very wealthy when at first he had no money to his name at all. Now, Jacob discerns it's time to leave as God has now commanded, I think, probably for the second time. Now, there's an intimate relationship, I think, between God's revealed will and our circumstances we'll say. The interesting play that doesn't always make us comfortable, God's call, I believe, um, had come much earlier. His, His revelation of his plan for Jacob, of how this is going to work out. Even his instructions are like, all right, it's, it's time to think about going home. Had become, had come, I think, in a dream much earlier, but he'd been patient. He didn't just go. He didn't just run after those 14 years, and we talked about this last week. I think in many ways, not only did he not force his own will and what would have been very understandable desires Upon his circumstances, he also didn't try to force and shape his circumstances to try and meet or match God's will. We play both of those games at times. I know what God wants, and so I'm going to force my way this way, or I know what I want, so that must be God's will, and so I'm going to force it this way. He knew God's promises very clearly. He heard God's command very clearly, yet he waited for God's timing. And as we consider the life of Jacob, I want us to think about this idea of of finding God's will, but also following God's will fearfully, not fearlessly, though I think you could probably say that as well. But this idea of fearfully, and we'll explain what that means as, as we go along. So if we skip ahead to verse 17, and I will remind you what happens in 16. I read that last week, but we'll address that in a second. He gets this command. And it says in verse 17, So Jacob arose and he set his sons and his wives on camels and he drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he acquired in Padanaram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. He's going home. Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the araman, and that word can be translated as he stole his heart. So he's not just cheating him and tricking him and when Laban comes later and says you tricked me he's saying something deeper that's important. But it says Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee and he fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. So the question is, after all this time, how did he know that it was the time to go? It had been 14 years. God had said, I'm going to take you home. And then another six years. How did he know now was the time? How did he know that this was God's will? How did he discern God's call? Well, I believe that discerning God's will always begins in the same place or should always begin in the same place. And with Jacob, it began by hearing God's word. God spoke. Any new word, any new feeling, any new sense of call, any new desire we have must always be tested against God's old word. We are not to be governed by what we feel God's will should be, nor what we imagine God's will could be, nor what we wish God's will would be. What we say and what we think and what we do is to be governed by what God's word says. And with Jacob, it's very clear God has said, go back home. He didn't say, leave, this is hard. He didn't say, just escape. He said, leave and go home to where I previously told you I was going to bring you back to. We must understand or receive God's word as a good thing, as a a means of protection, especially from our own flesh. We have the desires to do all kinds of things and we can certainly spiritualize those things as well to make ourselves and others feel better about them. But we must use God's word to protect us from not just false teachings, but false desires. So we begin with God's word. That's how we know. That's how we know God's will. That's how we discern God's will. It took six years for Jacob, though, to act on God's word. And the question is, why did he wait so long, even though God came and repeated himself, I believe? When he approached Laban six years ago, I think um, he probably just wanted to go, but Laban obviously wanted him to stay. We later see that um, Laban's desire to have him stay was kind of like a veiled threat. Even though it was like, you know what, name your price. As you read the kind of person Laban is and the kind of things he says in the future conversation here in chapter 31, it's more like, you're not going anywhere. Name your price. It was forceful. It wasn't just a big, huge invitation. In other words, in order for Jacob to have obeyed what God called him to do, what God was commanding him to do six years ago, In some way, he would have had to force his way. He would have had to fight his way out of that. He would have had to fight Laban, and we find out later he was actually scared that Laban would take all his kids and kick them out. He would have had to force a change in his circumstances, do something to force. Remember, he had no money. He had no means to provide for his family, no means to defend his family other than himself. He had really no servants other than the two ladies he had gotten from his wives. He had nothing. In other words, he knew what God had planned for him, but he wasn't ready. He wasn't ready to fulfill God's mission. And so God not only used those six years that were just as difficult as the first 14, he used those six years to prosper Jacob. He also used that time to prepare him to fulfill his mission. We get so excited about, like, I'm supposed to do this. I know I'm going to go, and I want to do it tomorrow. We go, well, what if it's six years from now? Oh, come on. The time is now. The harvest is right. We got to go. Really? Maybe you're not ready. Ready? Maybe that is a call from the Lord. Maybe that is a command from the Lord. Maybe that is very much a mission from God, but maybe you're not ready. You know how many years Paul, the apostle, who became a Christian after persecuting Christians, waited years before he went and started serving the Lord, planting churches, and preaching. Jacob wasn't ready. And the circumstances showed that. So he had this the word of God, he had these circumstances that made it difficult where he would have had to force his way, right? They have that idea of that open door. right? We get that from Paul who, who asked Timothy to pray that there will be an open door for the gospel and then Christians grab onto that. Open door, I like that. You know what, I think this is an open door from the Lord. And every door is open, translated, whatever I want, I think that's an open door that the Lord is opening up. And we take these little doors that are cracked open like this and we're like, start shoving them like clearly this is an open door right that the Lord wants me to go through and you're kicking it open I really believe that an open door is pretty open like you don't have to force your way you don't have to it's not a matter of taking them out of faith it's like this actually might be a little scary but it makes sense if you feel like you have to really shove it open and change everything and every circumstance about your life in order to fulfill God's mission it may not be time so he waits, but then he does something else, which I think is um, just awesome in terms of finding the, how I know this is the time, how do I know this is God's will. It's important to remember that discerning God's will is not some individualistic activity we do by ourselves in a closet somewhere. It's very dangerous to just, you know what? God has called me, and the Holy Spirit's told me that I should do this. I've had people have those conversations with me and I go, well, conversation over. If, if, if God's told you, who am I to argue that? Let's move on, right? It's very dangerous to, to, to function that way in terms of your approach to God and even your approach to God's word. You're my interpretation. That's your interpretation, my interpretation. I believe that discerning God's will is a communal activity. That God has given us community in order to protect us from ourselves and from others so that we don't run off into doing things that may look and feel great but actually may not be right. After six years of labor, after having heard God's word and even having the door bust wide open where basically Laban's like, well, you just get out of here and all this, no one likes him. He still doesn't act immediately. What does he do? He meets his wives in the field. And you read that in verses 1 through 16. He says, hey, let's go out in the field. Let's talk about this. And he begins to share with them first God's word. And then he begins to tell them about the circumstances of their lives. This is what's happened. I had this dream a long time ago. And and I, I made this agreement with your dad, blah, blah, and like I've gotten wealthy. And he acknowledges the Lord has done all of this. I'm not trying to cheat. But we're not liked right now. I'm not favored by your dad anymore. And after sharing with his wives a very clear, not over-spiritualized story, not an embellished story, they affirm what he has discerned. His wives affirm what he has discerned. That is a lesson for husbands, number one. for how you run off and just, I think we're supposed to do this. Um, take your wife out in the field and have a conversation first. But I do think in terms of community, it's important for others to come around and to speak into what you feel God has called you to do what we see is that these wives certainly were resentful of their dad. They speak about how they felt they've been mistreated. But they don't promote vengeance in their response. In fact, what they say in verse 17 is, okay, now then, do whatever God has told you to do. And that's a godly wife or a godly friend or a godly community that won't just say, you know what? Believe in yourself. I think you can do it. You know what? That makes sense on paper. A godly wife and a godly husband and a godly community will say, you know what? Pursue what the Lord has said to do. Pursue the things of God. Pursue what he has spoken about and not just your own preferences, not just what is easy, not just what makes sense, but they affirm, follow God's word. What he has said, listen to him. Now, some of us struggle with finding God's will. Others struggle with actually doing it once it's found. After finding God's will, hearing God's will, discerning what to obey, he doesn't force his way, that being Jacob. In fact, he asks people to have their say into it, and then he moves. A beautiful picture of how to find God's will. It continues in verse 25. He had left. He snuck out. Three days. Laban finds out. Verse 25 says this. Laban overtakes Jacob. He said, now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, now is the confrontation, what have you done? That you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. Here, those accusations against Jacob and how he's acting. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and then tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs and tambourines and lairs? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Well, my grandsons and granddaughters, but you know, that's. We'll just move beyond that. You mean to hear Laban's attitude in this whole thing? Now you have done foolishly. And it's in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And that dream is recorded in verse 24. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Mind you, that's not why Jacob left, though he did long for it. He left because God commanded him. Jacob answered and said to Laban, well, because I was afraid. In other words, why didn't you tell? Because I was afraid. I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods, I'll kill them. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the idols. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, into the tent of the two female servants, but he didn't find them. And he went out to Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. And now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent but did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of woman is upon me. So he searched and did not find the household gods. It Takes three days to be found or three days of travel and it takes him another seven days for Laban to catch up to him. He caught up to him because obviously Jacob is having flocks and livestock and more than likely Laban's coming with a bunch of his strong men. God had warned Laban on the way not to say anything, good or bad. He said, don't say anything good or bad. In many ways, he's warning Laban, do not threaten or tempt him to return in any way. (coughs) When Laban confronts Jacob, he basically asks him two questions. First, why did you steal my heart? You took my family You didn't give me a chance to celebrate. I'm very sad. And it makes you kind of like, oh, Laban, you seem like such a nice guy. And you have to remember, he is, um, certainly has probably affection for his family, but he is a controller. And he wants to control them. He's a father who sold his daughter like slaves and treated his son-in-law like a slave for 20 years. Following God... For Jacob, and perhaps for us all, <clears throat> will often result in accusations or worse from those who love you most. And that's hard, but Jesus warned us about that. It happened to him. One commentator wrote that those who obediently follow God's command could be confident in his protection, implying that those who don't cannot. Laban changes his tune in the second question as he begins to reveal his heart. He says, oh, you took my family. I wanted to throw a party for you guys. And then he has a little statement in there. You know, I could hurt you. Notice that? Just out of the blue. You know, I I could force you to do this. I got strong men. You're nothing, Jacob. I could take my daughters right now. He says, but God warned me in a dream. Your God came to me in a dream and said not to. Which reveals what he intended to do. Revealed that he was a violent man. So he says, well, why would you steal my gods then? Since I can't do anything about the family. Why would you steal my gods? Well, Jacob reveals that he was scared. He was going to take his family, perhaps all his stuff, and he says, look for your stuff if you want. Look for your idols. And so he does, and he searches everything. And the text doesn't explicitly say why Rachel ever took him to begin with. And as you read and, and kind of learn about the culture of the time, <clears throat> what you read is that it's possible that Rachel was idolatrous. She was raised in a pagan home. She, she may, it may be revealing some spiritual message about her. Don't really know that. More than likely, culturally, the household gods were kind of part of the inheritance and they had great resentment and great anger about the fact that um, they didn't have an inheritance. That Laban had squandered it away and had left them really nothing. And that's why in many ways they felt justified in going. But as one little last, I'm going to stick it to dad. I'm going to take the household gods. And she is taking what she believes she is owed as an heir. This is part of my inheritance. This is mine. Laban searches everywhere, finds nothing because Rachel's hiding them in her saddle and she uses the great impenetrable answer of answers for any question, right? It's that time of the month. Never mind. I will leave you alone, all right? But Rachel feels justified in her lie and justified in her theft But what she doesn't realize is this. Her theft of those gods are the only other reason that Laban had to pursue them and to stop them and to bother them. Had they not stolen the gods, it's possible that when God came and said, don't you dare do anything, he would have said, all right, I got no other reason to pursue them. But she gave him a reason to pursue she gave him a reason to slow down their fulfillment of what God clearly called them to do. What you see, I think, in many ways, is that when you're obeying God's command and you're fulfilling God's command and you're going on God's mission, there's lots of things that can hinder you. And one of those things that can hinder you is bitterness and resentment about something that's happened in the past. And that's what she has. She didn't have to take the gods like, yeah, one last thing. She's holding on to this thing. And now it's causing them problems in trying to obey what God's called them to do. To the point where someone herself could actually be threatened with death if it were discovered. The power of resentment should never be diminished. And it can stop you and hinder you you hold on to that past, whatever hurt it was, believing that, you know what, I've got to stick it to him because no one else will. What you see, or what we learn, I should say, is that those who obediently follow God's command and wait on the Lord can be grateful for God's provision, whatever form it comes, and they can be confident of God's protection, but they can also be certain that God will have his vengeance. They can let it go. And not let it go and be forgotten. Let it go and know that there's one who never forgets. And to trust that they don't have to hold on to that because, you know what, I'm going to hold on to this I'm going to punish you. I want you to hurt like I hurt for 20 years. You sold me, Dad. So I'm going to take what I know is most important to you, not realizing that's just hurting her. God can punish him and will punish him more than she ever could punish. And truly, any amount of punishment she gives her dad, it ain't gonna satisfy. It's never gonna satisfy. It will only slow her down in what she's been called to do. So we follow God's will confidently by releasing those things and trusting he's got us. But there's more we learn. After Laban searches and doesn't find it, Jacob's like, that's it. Because he doesn't know those gods are there, right? So all he sees is this guy rifling through the stuff, right? He's like, that's it. You found nothing. And what we see is Jacob get upset. Beginning in verse 36, he says, Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. So he's going to let him have it. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. And what have you found of your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide. Show me what you found, Laban. You upheaved all my stuff. Did you find it? Put it out there. Let them judge. Oh, you don't got anything? Interesting. Then he goes, these 20 years I've been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by day the heat consumed me and the cold by night and my sleep fled From my eyes, these 20 years I've been in your house, I served you 14 years for your two daughters, six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. But God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. I bet you Jacob feels better. After 20 years of restraint, he declares he is innocent and he does so boldly. And he rebukes Laban for having no evidence to back his accusations. And he doesn't stop there. He recounts 20 years of experience saying, look, despite the fact I was poorly paid, I was poorly treated, I went above and beyond to be faithful to you. To even protect you. I worked hard to build your wealth. I worked hard in the sun. I worked hard in the cold. I lost all kinds of sleep. His integrity was such that he even made selfless sacrifices so that his uncle would be blessed. You know what silences Laban more than anything? Is that Jacob was faithful when he was mistreated. He stands as a man of integrity. So he says, look, I did everything right. I did everything honorably, even though you were so dishonorable to me. Don't you dare question the purity of my motivation for leaving. It would have been really easy to question his motivation six years ago, though even that would have been maybe understood. It would have been easy for him to say, this is why I'm not going to work anymore. But he served faithfully. And while they, by all earthly measures, he had the right to flee, that was not what gives him confidence that he is following God and doing what is right. He did not choose to flee just a bad situation. He didn't choose to follow his own personal preferences. He chose to follow a good God who'd given his good word. You see, too often people respond to what is called the call in order to escape. It's an escape. Refusing to test that call with scripture or the counsel of community, they boldly embrace God has called me to do this and I'm going to uproot my family and go. And in their haste to get away. They diminish the value of something that is so important. They want so desperately to get away from a hard situation that's difficult and uncomfortable and unfair. They diminish the value of steadfast faithfulness and the day-to-day monotony of difficult trials in life. And instead, they idolize and they, and they make this huge deal about radical faithfulness. That's faithfulness, running off to do this, uprooting and doing this when what we see here is Jacob in a really boring, uncomfortable, difficult situation that he probably would have never chosen being faithful and honoring God. Jacob is confident in following God's command to do something which is going to be rather extraordinary because God demonstrated his faithfulness in the ordinary. He began to see in the ordinary outworking of life so much so that he could trust the next chapter that he was being asked to play. And Jacob's defense is not based on himself. Essentially, Jacob defends the rightness of his actions by attributing his success to God's grace. He doesn't say, look, I left because I needed to. I left for the good of my family. I left because I desired to go home. He says, I was protected by God and I left because God told me to. That's really what our response to the will of God is. It's, it's just a response. It's not something we manufacture. It's not something we we create out of personal desires. We follow God's will, his clear revealed will, a will that's, that's tested and spoken into by those that we love, a will that, that makes sense with the circumstances as they unfold. Not because it is a feel-better option. It's because we realize it's the only true option despite how it feels. Jacob's fearless defense, right? Because he just says, look, you are out of line, dad. And he changes Laban's attitude. Laban, I think in that moment, is silenced. He realizes, I have nothing to say. I am wrong. And so it's his last little hurrah. In verse 43, he says this, and Laban answered Jacob's berating. And he said, well, the daughters are my daughters, The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. Don't forget that, Jacob. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have born? They're not coming with me, so what can I do? Let's, he says, let's make a covenant, you and I. Let's let's make an agreement. Let's Let's make an agreement that's going to define what I expect from you and what you expect from me. Jake is, all right. So he sets up a a stone pillar like he did at Bethel. He makes a big old pile of stones next to this one stone. And this will be a witness to our agreement, a witness to our covenant. And Laban names the place where the heap of stones resides Mizpah, which means watchtower. He says, the Lord's going to watch us. And here's what he says he's going to watch. In verse 50, he says, Jacob, if you oppress my daughters, if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see God as a witness between you and me. It's noteworthy that Laban is not setting up the watchtower so that they're both watched. It's so that Jacob's watched. Laban doesn't see himself as a guy who needs to be watched. He's been very honorable. But clearly, Jacob, you need to be watched. So we're going to set this up. And if you mistreat my daughters, oh, man, God's going to get you. This God I don't actually believe in. But he's going to get you. And more than that, he says in verse 32, or 52, this heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I'm not going to pass over this heap to you and you'll not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. We won't hurt each other. Not that Jacob ever said he was going to hurt Laban, but Laban certainly said he was going to hurt Jacob. But what he says next reveals, I think, everything. He says, the God of Abraham... And the God of Nahor. Now the God of Nahor, Nahor was Abraham's sibling. And he stayed back in pagan Ur, Unlike Abraham who followed the one true God. So what you see is that Laban is this polytheistic pagan. It's like, yeah, God of Abraham, God of whatever, God of this, God of Nahor, any gods, whatever, We'll have them all watch you. And that's who he swears by. But Jacob swears differently. And in that it reveals why Jacob is never afraid this whole time. He has much to be afraid of, I think. He's got an angry father-in-law basically says, you know, I could totally harm you right now. And he never is fearful. He's a very opposite. He's he's completely fearless. He's like, whatever. Unlike Laban, What we see in verse 53 is Jacob swears differently on his oath. It says in verse 53 that Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. In swearing by the fear of Isaac, which is a strange thing to say. What fear did Isaac have? But in swearing on the fear of Isaac, not only does Jacob confess his allegiance to the one true God, he reveals what's actually governing his life as he moves forward. Jacob is not governed by fear of Laban or fear of his circumstances or fear of any number of things, none less than meeting Esau soon who wants to kill him. He is governed by a greater fear. There's a greater fear that overcomes all fears, and that is the fear of God. The fear of God is greater than the fear of loss, and the fear of God is greater than the fear of pain, and the fear of God is greater than the fear of the unknown, and even greater than the fear of men. Jacob feared God, and that's a confusing thing for us to talk about. We don't doesn't feel good or maybe it's a little vague. And when the Bible talks about fear, we we often say, well, it means great respect and awe. And that's true. It doesn't mean fearing God like I'm scared of God, like he's the boogeyman or something. He's going to get me if I do something wrong. That's not the kind of fear we're talking about. To help understand this, I paraphrase one pastor who explained it this way. says, when we go into the Old Testament, where we have the term, the fear of the Lord, it's very common. But we come upon some very puzzling usages of it. Often the fear of the Lord is linked with great joy. Proverbs 28, 14 tells us that, happy is the one who feareth always. That should seem weird, right? You'd be so happy if you're fearful. How can someone who is constantly to be fear-filled be happy? One of the most surprising is Psalm 130 where the psalmist says, Forgiveness comes for you, therefore you are feared. Forgiveness and grace increase the fear of the Lord. Other passages tell us that we can be instructed to grow in the fear of the Lord and that's to be characterized by praise and wonder and delight. Like how can that, how can that be? You would think that being scared would have been diminished, not increased by such things like forgiveness. But what we see is that the true sense of the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament implies relationship, implies an intimacy and a closeness to God. You see, when you just fear something, and everyone has experienced this in some way, when you've just feared something, and, and that something becomes you become so overwhelmed with fear about that thing. It could be fear of losing something or fear of not getting something or fear of something changing. It could be losing a job. It could be someone not acting the way you think. It could be some embarrassing situation you're fearful of. Whatever it is, like it can become so overwhelming to you that it controls what you do, doesn't it? It can control what you think. It can control what you perceive. It can control what you do and how you speak. You're controlling. I'm dominated by this fear. But in contrast, when someone who fears the Lord, someone who fears the Lord is overwhelmed by something, and I believe it is the greatness of God and particularly his grace Toward me. That's what we see in the life of Jacob. Like Jacob, we see the more we understand the greatness of God's love toward us, right? That's what Jacob talked about. Man, this trial was horrible, but God protected me. This trial was difficult, but he provided for me. He saw my affliction and he was with me for 14, 20 years. His love for me is amazing. All that he has done. And when you begin to see all that he has done for you, you begin to fear him. And the more you see he has done for you, the more you fear him. And the overwhelming nature of that governs all other fears. The more we fear him, the less we fear the world, and the more we stand ready to do whatever he asks us to do. See, Jacob saw God's faithfulness in trial and therefore he feared the Lord. And when we see what God has done for us in Christ, the fear of God becomes the greatest influence in our lives. When we fear God, In the sense that we're overwhelmed by his love for us. And how can you not be overwhelmed by a God who says, you are so messed up and broken, but I'm going to send my son to die for you, to pay the penalty you deserve for your sin, but to live the life that you could have never lived, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to forgive you the depth of your sin, even the sins you've never told anybody about. I'm going to forgive you. That fear of being overwhelmed by that kind of love, of that kind of goodness and generosity and grace becomes the dominating influence in our life. The fear of God, that kind of fear, will help us endure whatever difficulty we have, whatever loss we experience, whatever unfairness we have to endure. And it will help us do so with faith and without complaint whether it is to stay exactly where you are or whether it is to go when God says move. Jacob feared God relatively imperfectly. We'll see Jacob is not a rock star of faith. He doesn't do everything right, but there is one who did. Jesus feared God perfectly. He saved us. And I would argue that he saved us by fearing God perfectly, more than anything or anyone else there was. And he gave us more than an example to follow. The Bible says he gave us his spirit. And it is not a spirit of fear in the sense of fearing the world or timid. It is, it is a spirit of boldness where we live God-fearing lives in a world without fear. Because we simply know God has us. And so as we close this morning... We come to the table and and my, my fear is that we come to this table at a routine or as a routine without actually thinking through it. So if I could just characterize it a little bit differently. Dare I say that we come face to face with the fear of God at this table. Because it's at this table with the wine or juice, there's His blood shed for us, the blood of the Son of God shed for us, His body broken for us. It is at this table that the fear of God becomes so great because it's at this table where His love cannot be seen more greater. It's tangibly seen. It's a tangible reminder of His great love for us. And we see that we have a God who is to be feared. And it's not a fear that scares us away. It's a fear that actually draws us near. And as we draw near to him, we experience more joy, as we experience more forgiveness, and as we are given a hope beyond this world where there is much that our flesh could fear. It makes us in many ways fear-filled so that we can be fearless. Do we have anything to fear if we fear God this way? Paul, in Romans 8, and I'll close with this, answers that question by saying, no. Do we have anything to fear if we fear God in this way? No. In all these things, what are these things? Well, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us, for I'm sure that neither death nor life. There are things to be feared in the flesh in death. There are lots of things to be feared in life. He says neither angels nor rulers, no things present, nor things that I fear might come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus Therefore, we will follow God fearfully in that full of fear and fearlessly in the world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the story of Jacob. We thank you for how we see a, a real guy. This is not some myth. This is not some character in a book, Lord. This is one of your chosen people. Jacob, a normal dude who endured 20 years of difficulty. He didn't endure it because he was strong. He didn't endure it because he was wise. He endured it because he feared you, Lord. And in those 20 years of time, you taught him what it meant to fear him, fear you. And what it means is to be overwhelmed by your commitment to us a commitment we don't deserve, a love that we have not earned, a forgiveness that in many ways we probably would deny or want. But you break through all of our ugly sin and you love us and you forgive us and you fill us with joy as we are overwhelmed by a fear of you, an awe of you. Thank you for inviting us into relationship with you. I pray you will help us live as if this world is not all there is. That you help us live lives that truly believe you love us in Christ. That we are fearfully and wonderfully made and pursued by you and loved by you. And that fear of you will be the controlling influence in our life. Make us a people who fear you, God. Not ones who are scared about you, but ones who know you so deeply because we know the love you have for us in Christ. Let us celebrate now with hearts filled with joy, remembering that not only have you loved us, but you will love us and that Jesus will return and we will experience the fullness of that love someday. Return quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.